worship and we are so thankful to have you worshiping with us here at First Baptist Church. If you'll take your Bibles and open to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. Well, a number of years ago, there was a new musical that just kind of was all the rage, and now it's all the rage again because it's on Disney+. Plus. It's the musical Hamilton. And if you're a history buff, it's really interesting to watch. It, it's a fascinating uh, take on history, and, and while I watched it, uh, uh, I Googled different things and, and just to see, ah, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, they, they really said that. That's, uh, I mean, they, maybe they didn't rap it back then, but they said it, you know. So it was, it was kind of fun to watch. Well, of course, one of the main characters in that and in the story of, An- of Alexander Hamilton is uh, Aaron Burr. And you remember the, the duel, the fateful duel between him and Aaron Burr. Uh, and Aaron Burr was famously an atheist. But the story is told that one of his granddaughters gave her heart to Christ. And there was an evening that she said to her grandfather, I wish you were a Christian too. And he replied, when I was a young man, I went to church meetings. I felt my need of God's mercy and forgiveness and knew that I should give my heart to Christ. But I walked out without doing it. I stood under the stars and looked up toward heaven and said, God, if you don't bother me anymore, I'll never bother you. And he said to her, My dear, God has kept his part of that bargain. He has never bothered me. Now it is too late for me to bother him. What a tragedy. What a tragedy for anyone, much less an influential leader and politician like Aaron Burr, to turn their hearts from God until the point that it is so cold and it is so hard they no more hear the promptings of the Spirit. Could you just imagine how different American history would have been if Aaron Burr had given his heart to Christ instead of hardening it? You know, the Bible tells us that God is patient. He's long-suffering. He's not, he doesn't want any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But the Bible also says that God's Spirit doesn't always contend with humans, especially those who repeatedly deny Christ and quench the Spirit's convicting work. You know, Jesus said not to throw pearls before swine. He told his disciples that there comes a time when you have to shake the dust off your feet and move on. And it's not so much that God gives up on somebody, but it's that a person can reject God enough that they no longer hear his voice. They no longer feel his prompting. It's been said that God's a gentleman. He never barges in where he's not welcome. The invitation is always extended, though. And I think the same thing happens even more so with churches and with nations. God sent Amos to preach to the people of Israel and Judah to warn them once more that if things didn't change very, very soon, judgment was coming. God was sending a roar, a roar of warning. Now, two weeks ago we looked at some specific sins that God was roaring against Israel and Judah in treating people inhumanely, immorality, idolatry, injustice. And then last week we saw that God gave a call to salvation and service, which requires confession and repentance on our part. Well, in this next sermon, Amos pulls off the gloves. He brings a message that's meant to grab the people's attention, shake their conscience, and make them face up to the reality that time was up. God wasn't going to put up with their shenanigans anymore. God was calling them to return to Him before it was too late. And how 
were they supposed to return to Him? How can Christians who have grown too much like the world, how can we return to Christ? How can churches who have grown cold and lifeless return to their Savior? Well, Amos describes at least two ways in which we are to return to God. These aren't the only ways, but they do answer two of those specific sins that God was calling Israel out for, the sin of of injustice and the sin of idolatry. So let's look at the first way in which we can return to the Lord, and that's with our wealth. We can return to the Lord with our wealth. Let's look at Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Now listen, if I ever came in here and started off a sermon calling the women in the church cows, y'all would be putting together a new search committee really soon, wouldn't you? That's what Amos, he starts off with. He's speaking to the women. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon. Talk about getting their attention. But what does Amos mean here? I mean, is Amos, you know, like, like fat-shaming these women? Is, is that why he called them cows? No, he's not saying they look like cows. He's saying they are acting like cows. You see, you have to understand, Bashan was a very fertile region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee that was well known for its premium beef. It was famous for its cattle. And just as cows are fattened up, Before they're led to the slaughterhouse, these women, by their sinful lifestyles, have been fattening up themselves for the coming slaughter of God's judgment. That's what Amos means. These were wealthy, high society women. They were living in the lap of luxury in Israel's capital city of Samaria, These would have been the wives of the wealthy movers and shakers of Israel, men who had obtained their wealth on the backs of the poor and the needy, as as God described in the previous chapters. Now, we have to understand that God is not condemning wealth or success per se here. That's not what God's doing. We look in the Bible, Abraham and Job were both wealthy men with lots of servants and cattle and land. They had expansive estates. Kings David and Solomon were famed for their wealth. But these men chose to use their wealth for the glory of God and the good of others, not just for their own selfish purposes. And as 21st century Americans, we have to understand that we are far more like Abraham and David and these wealthy women in Samaria than we are like the poor and the needy who are being abused. Now, you may not think that you're rich. I certainly don't think that I'm rich. Listen to these statistics. In the United States, 90% of homes have air conditioning. That's compared with the rest of the world where less than a third of homes have air conditioning. Aren't you thankful for air conditioning? Amen? But that puts us in the 90 percentile. It's estimated that only 9% of the world's population owns their own car. Only 9% of the world. And the United States is in the top four countries As far as car ownership, the average American owns 1.88 cars. Sometimes I feel like my car is more of a .88, but especially when you have to keep taking it to the shop. 
To be among the wealthiest half of the world last year, an adult needed to only own, this is the top 50%, an adult only needed to own $3,210 in net assets minus debts. Not much. To be in the top 10%, a person needed to only have $68,800 in wealth. To be in the top percentile, the 1%, let's hear about the 1%, the threshold is $760,000 worth of accumulated wealth. That's not income. It can be shocking to realize how wealthy we are in this country. Not just compared with other countries, but even with Americans in history past. You go back 50 years. They wouldn't begin to imagine the luxuries that we enjoy on a daily basis. We take them for granted. We take for granted that our kids have access to free education. That 70% of American high school graduates will go on to college. Or that we have access to safe, clean drinking water. We don't even question it. We have so many choices of food to eat in the stores or restaurants to go out and eat at that we actually struggle with deciding where to eat or what to eat, not whether or not we get to eat, as so many in the world wonder every day. We have endless entertainment choices at our, at our fingertips, cheap and reliable electricity. The Internet is just taken for granted today. And despite maybe its price tag at times, we have the, one of the best health systems in the world. But as much as these are blessings, there's also a danger that comes with these. Because this kind of luxury and affluence can lead to aimless leisure. It can lead to self-centeredness and greed. It can even lead to apathy, if not actually actively oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. Henry David Thoreau wrote, Most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. With respect to luxuries and comforts, the wisest have ever lived a more simple and meager life than the poor. He's right. Happiness is not found in the abundance of our possessions. And when we try to fill the void in our heart that only God can fill with the trinkets and the treasures and the pleasures of this life, we end up sorely disappointed and frustrated, don't we? And we see the devastating results of that in people's lives, in families, in failed businesses. The women of Israel in Amos' day were confronted by being guilty of this kind of self-centered, materialistic lifestyle. They lived for the next party and asked for their husbands to bring them more drinks while the poor were starving to death at their doorsteps. Such people don't care how much something costs. You know the old saying, if you have to ask how much it costs, you can't afford it. These people didn't care how much it costs. They would always get what they wanted. And what they didn't realize is oftentimes the cost was in far more than dollars and cents. It's not a sin to own abundant possessions. But it is a sin when our possessions begin to own us. When they begin to captivate our hearts, that's when we need to confess our materialistic greed. We need to turn from our idolatrous relationship with money and possessions and conveniences and comforts and entertainment and pleasure. We need to return to the Lord with our wealth. Let's be thankful for God's blessings. Let's be good stewards, good managers of the resources that God has so richly blessed us with. 
He's not given them just for our own pleasures, but so that we can use them for His glory, for the good of others, for the furthering of the gospel. There's a reason why God has blessed America. And one of the reasons is that America has been the greatest agency for sending missionaries in all the world. We send more missionaries around the world than any other country. But that's not a given. That may not be true in a year, in five years. As Andrew Carnegie said, surplus wealth is a sacred trust which its possessor is bound to administer in his lifetime for the good of the community. Or as, Jesus, or as Paul put it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. That's a passage we need to be reading and meditating on on a regular basis, isn't it? See, God warned these well-fed, well-to-do women that if they failed to return to Him with their wealth, then they and their children, that's what it means by to the last. The, the Hebrew there means to the last generation. They and their children and even their children's children will be led away as if by fish hooks. And you have to understand that in, in Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, when they would come in and conquer a, a nation like Israel, they would often come in there and they would go to the wealthy and they would put a hook in their nose or in their bottom lip and they would literally string those people together like fish on a line and would lead them captive out of their homeland. And God wants His people to know that what He says here, He means. This is no joke. This is no empty threat. Which is why He says here, uh, He says, The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness the time will surely come. God's putting His reputation on the line. He's swearing by the most, by the most uh, true the most moral character that we could ever imagine, the holiness of God, he says, I stake my reputation that I will do what I am threatening to do. Now, sometimes parents, we might be guilty of kind of threatening our kids with something and then we don't follow through with it. God says, that's not the case here. I will surely do this. So Amos makes his first point by insulting the wealthy women of Samaria. And then he makes a second point by further insulting their favorite places and practices of worship. So you know he's really winning friends and influencing folks right here, right? I mean, people really are going to want Amos to come back and preach some more, right? No. But let's look at what he says in Amos 4, verses 4 and 5. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes. Every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. Can't you just hear and feel the sarcasm here? God is telling them they need to return to Him with their worship. Not just their wealth, but their worship. It, it's, 
he is being ironic here. And, and it's almost as if he's saying, go ahead and go to church. But if you do, you're just going to be sinning more. And go ahead and go to your Bible conference. Go to your Christian concert. You're just going to prove yourself to be more guilty. Because your hearts aren't serious about knowing, loving, and serving me. You're just playing at religion. That's what God's saying to them. And God was calling out literally their favorite places of worship, calling them shrines of sin. He was calling their favorite worship practices perversions. Let's just think about those places of worship. Amos here mentions two of the oldest places of worship in all of Israel. Bethel, which means house of God. This is where Abraham built an altar twice to the Lord early when he came into the promised land and worshipped the Lord there. It's where Jacob had that, that uh, famous dream of the angels ascending and descending a ladder to heaven. You know, it's through Jacob's ladder. That's where that happened. In fact, Jacob is the one who named Bethel. Bethel, he said, this is the house of God. The Lord was here and I didn't even realize it. The Ark of the Covenant at one point in the book of Judges was housed at Bethel. It was an ancient place of worship. The house of God. Gilgal, which means rolled back. This is where Joshua set up camp for Israel as soon as they crossed the Jordan River. On the eve of that famous battle against Jericho. And it was here that Israel observed the Passover for the first time in 40 years. It's where the men of Israel were circumcised because none of the ones who had been born in the wilderness and raised up had been circumcised. So at Gilgal... God told Israel, today I have rolled back from you the reproach of Egypt because it was there that Israel reaffirmed their covenant relationship with God. Bethel was the house of God. Gilgal symbolized a revival of the people of Israel reaffirming their covenant relationship with the Lord. How ironic that in Amos' day both had become pagan shrines. Bethel in particular, was the seat of religious power for the king of Israel. King Jeroboam there built an illegal temple, a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem so that his people wouldn't go into Judah to worship at the temple and to give their tithes and offerings there. He wanted to keep all of that in his kingdom. So he set up a competing religious system there in Bethel to consolidate his power. So in Amos' day, on the surface, it looked like Israel was having a revival. Crowds were flocking to Bethel and Gilgal in droves. They were going to holy places. They were celebrating feasts and festivals. They were bringing sacrifices and offerings. But God wasn't impressed. And next Sunday, we'll look in a little bit further detail about this in Amos chapter 5. But He calls out their places of worship as shrines of sin. And secondly, he calls out their practices of worship. The Lord called out Israel for keeping up the appearance of religion while denying the very law of God that they pretended to uphold. For example, the daily sacrifices. The Old Testament law, you look in Leviticus, required a morning and an evening sacrifice. So you could bring your sacrifices in the morning or in the evening, but apparently these rich Israelites were only bringing their sacrifices in the morning. You know why? Because that's when more people could see them do it. They were showing off. Look how faithful I am. Look how generous I'm being. He calls them out for their regular tithes. 
the law required them to bring a regular special tithe every three years to support the work of the Levites. Now, the Levites was the tribe of Israel that was where the priests came from. It was the tribe that was responsible for upkeeping the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem. The literal Hebrew, and if you, in my NIV, there's a little note at the bottom of that that says tithes on the third day. So the literal Hebrew there is that they brought tithes on the third day, not every three years. So basically what God is saying is, look, you're going above and beyond what the law requires. You're going way beyond. I require you to bring a tithe every three years or bringing it every three days. Now you might think, well, that sounds like a good thing. But again, they're doing it because they think that in doing that, in following through with this ritual, somehow they're appeasing God. Somehow they don't have to change their lifestyle. They can go on drinking and partying and oppressing the poor, and it's all okay because at least they are bringing their tithe more than what the law required. And furthermore, they're not bringing that tithe to Jerusalem to support the Levites like, like it's supposed to do. Where are they bringing that tithe? It's to Bethel to support King Jeroboam's hired priests, to further support a corrupt religious elite who are encouraging idolatry as much as they are the worship of the Lord. But the real problem, the, the Amos that God is getting at here was a heart issue. It was their motive. Their motive in giving so frequently wasn't to give praise for God's provision for them, but to show off their generosity toward God. Look at me. Look how much I'm going above and beyond the call of duty. And then finally he calls out their thanks and free will offerings. These were important but voluntary elements in Israel's worship. They were meant to be spontaneous acts of joy and devotion to God. The, 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 the daily sacrifices, the regular tithes, they were commanded in the law. You did those as a, as a symbol of your obedience. But these thank and free will offerings were meant to represent your love and gratitude spontaneously and freely given to God. But the Israelites in Amos' day were only bringing these offerings so they could boast about their generosity, so they could impress people with their spirituality. It's like what Jesus accused the Pharisees of in Matthew chapter 6. He said, you know, he called them out for their showy nature. And he said, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Rather, Jesus goes on to say that, that we are to draw as little attention as we can to our acts of generosity, to the point that our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing. And our Father, who sees what we do in secret, will reward us. Yesterday morning at Mr. Jimmy Poston's funeral, I, I shared that the Jay and Kelly told me how, or sorry, Jay and Amy told me how many times that people would come up to them and say, oh, you're Jimmy Poston's son or Jimmy Poston's daughter, let me tell you what he did for me once. And they would recount some act of generosity. They said, did you know your dad did that? And Amy and Jay would both have to say, no, I didn't know that. Because he didn't brag about those things. We should live our lives in such a way that we are generous to other people. And we're not sounding it out. We're not showcasing it off to our family and our friends. We're not making a big deal out of it. Because when we do good deeds, it shouldn't bring glory to us. It shouldn't shine a spotlight on you or me. It should always shine a spotlight 
on God. Jesus said that we're to do good deeds, we're to live our lives in such a way that people see the things that we do because they are just the natural expression in our life and they give glory to our Father who is in heaven, not because we're on the street corner sounding it out with trumpets, tweeting it out, pasting it on Facebook, look what I did. That's the world we live in. We live in a society that's all about self-aggrandizement. It's all about look at me. It's either look at me, look at the things I've done, or woe is me, look at the things people have done to me. And we tend to make everything about ourselves instead of making great the name of Jesus. That's what Israel was. Things have not changed much in all these thousands of years, have they? Israel loved going to the religious meetings, but they didn't love God. Places of worship were popular, but they were powerless. There was no confession, no brokenness over sin, only religious rituals that were meant to make them look good to others and make them feel good about themselves. And sadly, this is what worship has become to far too many churchgoers today. You know, we, how do we evaluate a worship service? Well, we look around and we say, how many people came? What was the attendance, right? We look at numbers. We look at, how did I feel? Did I feel good? Did I have an emotional experience? Was my favorite song sung? Did they use my style of music? Did they use the instruments that I like? Was the preacher funny? Was he interesting? Did he keep me entertained? That's how we evaluate worship, isn't it? How many came? How did it make me feel? How good of a job did the choir or the worship band or the preacher do? For us to return to God with our worship is to forsake this kind of superficial and worldly metric and instead ask questions like, did I hear the Word of God preached truthfully? Was I convicted, challenged, encouraged, equipped? by the Spirit of God, to do something? Am I leaving that worship service knowing God a little bit better? Do I feel like I'm walking closer with God? Am I more committed to being obedient to God than when I came into church this morning? Those are the metrics. Because the point of worship isn't for us to feel anything. It's for us to give praise and glory to God. That's the point of worship. A good worship service isn't about the quality of what's happened up here. It's about the quality of what's happened in here. It isn't about information or even inspiration. It's about transformation. Samuel, the prophet, rebuked King Saul about this very issue in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. David acknowledged this same thing in his prayer of confession and repentance after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He prayed in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So what kind of sacrifice is God pleased with? He said, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. You, God, will 
not despised. God was despising the offerings and the tithes and the sacrifices that Israel was bringing because there was no brokenness. There was no contrition. As the Matt Redmond song sings, we need to come back to the heart of worship where it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. Because everything we do as Christians, everything we do as a church flows from the fountainhead of worship. And you think about it, when, a, when, when, when the source, a spring, a fountainhead is contaminated, when it's polluted, everything else downstream is polluted as well. And when our worship is contaminated with self-centeredness, with worldly priorities and metrics, when how it makes me feel, was I entertained, did I like it, was I fed, when those are the things that we judge worship by rather than praise and glory of God and the truthfulness of God's Word being preached, you don't think that has an effect on our evangelism? On our missions? On our ministries? On our business meetings? Yes, it does. Let's return to God with our wealth and our possessions, with our worship and our service, with heart attitudes that are right about those things. But what happens if we don't return? What if, like Israel, we repeatedly resist God's roar? Let's finish this chapter, beginning in verse 6. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain and another one dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench, meaning the stench of death in your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, and this is probably one of the most bone-chilling verses in the Bible, Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is His name. Five times, as Carrington pointed out in the children's sermon, five times in these verses, God says, you have not returned to me. Time and again, God disciplined Israel, but they refused to submit. They refused to heed the warnings. They refused to change their hearts and their ways. And God knew all along Israel would do this. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy... Moses is about about to die. He's about to to pass the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. Israel's on the verge of finally entering the promised land. And God gives them a warning not to forsake him. 
He told them that he would discipline them if they didn't obey, but he almost also promised to bless them if they remained faithful to their covenant relationship with him. He gave them a warning and a promise. And I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. I challenge you to read that this afternoon. Because every one of these acts of discipline that God mentions here in Amos 4 are predicted in Deuteronomy, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Every one of them. The famine, the drought, the plagues on crops, the plagues on personal health, the calamity, it's all predicted. And Israel was guilty. They did the very things God warned them not to do. And God, true to His Word, sent the disciplines that He promised to send. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20, He says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when all of God's warnings and all of His disciplines that were meant to turn their hearts back to Him when they failed, God says, fine, Okay, I'm going to come down there and deal with you myself. Sort of like when your dad says, don't make me stop and pull over the car. And then you do. And then he does. That's what God is saying. I'm going to come down there and deal with you. Is there anything more chilling than having the supreme sovereign creator of the universe look at you and say, prepare to meet your God? I'm coming to deal with you myself. God has exhausted all of the other options. And now He's going to come. He's going to come with the Assyrian army in tow. And He's going to take away this rebellious people like animals being led to slaughter, like fish hooked on the line. And He can do this because He's the one who made the mountains. He's the one who makes the wind. He's the one who reveals His thoughts to humanity. And what God is revealing here is that He is awesome and fearful and powerful and holy. As Psalm 139 tells us, we can't escape His presence. We cannot hide from His penetrating gaze. Which is why we must prepare to meet our God. We must hear His roar and respond by returning to Him with all of our heart, with our worship and with our wealth. Are you prepared to meet your God? Are you prepared to meet your God? We have something ancient Israel didn't have. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus, God, in human flesh loved us enough that He hung upon that cross. He took our sin and our shame upon Himself and shed His precious blood. He gave up His life so that you and I might live. So that we, He chose death that you and I could choose life and live. He took the curse so that we could have the blessing of life forevermore. How did you prepare to meet your God? You prepare to meet your God by trusting in Jesus. He's done the preparation work. You just receive it by faith. Have you done that? Are you prepared to meet a holy God? If not, then I invite you this morning to turn from your sin, to confess them to Christ, to ask Him to forgive you, 
to send His Spirit to live within you and to transform you from the inside out. It's not about being religious. It's not about giving. It's not about coming and sitting in a sanctuary. It's about putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. As I told Johnny before the baptism, it's not about what happened in these waters this morning. It's about what happened in his heart months ago when he trusted in Jesus Christ. I pray you would do that this morning. It's the only way you can be prepared to meet your God. And for us as Christians, as believers, what about us? Will we return to the Lord with our wealth? Will we? Maybe you need to confess this morning of your greed, your materialism, your worrisomeness. You know, nothing makes us worry so much as our stuff, about losing our stuff. We, we buy insurance, we, we buy safes, we lock things away because we want to protect our stuff. Maybe for you... You worry too much about that. You need to confess that today. How would God have you return to Him as a good steward of His many blessings? Maybe for you, you need to return to the Lord with your worship this morning. What self-centered or self-righteous attitudes do you need to confess to God this morning? How would He have you to return to Him with a heart of worship that elevates God alone, that comes to Him with a humble spirit willing to listen and respond in obedience. Maybe you've been guilty about making worship about you and about how you feel and what you want. How would God have you return this morning in your worship? Whatever God has laid upon your heart, I pray you would not be like Aaron Burr and resist and tell God to leave you alone. I pray you would come this morning in humility and in repentance. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, once again, you give us a a hard word through Amos. Once again, Lord, you convict us and you challenge us about our assumptions, our priorities, our hearts. I pray, Father, that your people would be obedient. I pray that we would keep our hearts soft. I pray we would not be like Israel and fail time after time after time to return to you. Whatever that looks like for each individual here or listening or watching at home, Father, I pray that we would return to you in humility, in confession, in trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.